Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Associate Professor Joan Steigerwald, who has come all the way from York University in Canada to talk to us today about Alexander von Humboldt. Thank you for that introduction and for the invitation to this incredibly beautiful city. I've never had a chance to be in Sydney before and I've just become completely smitten by um, how beautiful it is. So one of the disadvantages of working on romantic sciences is that you end up dealing with so many huge figures, one of whom is Alexander von Humboldt, but there's Goethe, there's Kant, there's Schelling, there's just innumerable uh, figures who have a vast scholarship on them. So I'm reducing my interest to one particular individual, Alexander von Humboldt, and his views of nature today. Um, the life of Alexander von Humboldt was uh, quite, or spanned an extraordinary period of European and German, and indeed world history. Um, when the world into which he was born in 1769 was one in which Germany um, had no sense of it was scattered and divided into a series of different states which were quite diverse in size and in structure from Prussia, which was a large and ambitious monarchy um, ruled by the enlightened despot Frederick the Great. So you have Prussia, but you also have a smaller place like Frankfurt, which was a free and prosperous city-state ruled by patrician families. Quite a spectrum of these different kinds of political structures at the time. And it was also dominated Germany or the German state um, by learning and culture from France and from England. But it was also a world full of promise. The achievements of the scientific revolution were being considered and extended. The Enlightenment, with the Republic of Letters, was uh, holding out the promise of a similar progress in other areas of human inquiry was also a great age of exploration. With Humboldt as a boy reading the journals of Captain James Cook and Louis de Falkenberg um, and their adventures circumnavigating Spain. And as a young man, he formed a relation with Georg Forster, who had traveled with Captain Cook on his second voyage. This was the world into which Humboldt was, into which Humboldt was born. The world into which he died um, in 1815 was a world that had been radically transformed. Germany was becoming a nation that could pride itself on its many intellectual and cultural achievements, on its important literary figures, of which Johann Wolfgang Goethe, Goethe, as well as artistic figures such as Caspar David Friedrich, I just know somebody best known. There was a formidable philosophical tradition in the Manuel Kant, Georg Hegel, again, just some of the best known figures. It had established the academic study of history. Um, world languages and biblical criticism, and established some of the most important research universities in Europe and around the world. And it was beginning to be a thriving industrial state. Many of the changes that Humboldt witnessed were accompanied by tremendous political and social revolution as well. He lived through the French Revolution, and like many of his generation, he was an enthusiastic supporter of the Republican ideals but he also became a bit cautious about some of the more violent aspects of the revolution and became a strong advocate for reform rather than revolution um, as a medium or a means of social and political change. He also lived through subsequent waves of political and social revolution and upheaval. In the first half of the 19th century, through the Napoleonic Wars and also the wars of independence in the Americas, South America and Spanish America. And he also saw the rise of socialist movements and democratic uprisings in the renewal of the 19th century. He also witnessed fundamental changes in the sciences, profound changes in the theoretical understanding and experimental investigation of chemistry, electricity, and magnetism. He saw the big things of thermodynamics. And he also saw rapid developments in geology and the study of the Earth sciences. 
study of the physical Earth scientifically. He also saw the emergence of biology as a science, the rise of experimental physiology, and investigations of the transformation of life on Earth, the beginnings of evolutionary theory. Humber was a participant in many of these scientific developments. He was one of the first German supporters of the new chemistry of Lavoisier and studied how it applied to the life, the phenomena of life. He also studied geology, the terrestrial distribution and temperature and magnetism, and the distribution of plants and animals in relationship to their environment. Indeed, as a young man, Humble gravitated towards the study of science, rather than the more obvious practical profession of law or commerce, which his mother had encouraged both Alexander and his brother Wilhelm to uh, pursue in, his, in her interest um, in their future. He finished his schooling at the renowned Freiburg Mining Academy in 1791-92, and spent actually the first, the next five years working as a, a mining inspector for the Prussian uh, government, um, studying and reforming mining production and practice, helping to make better uh, working conditions for miners, and pursuing detailed investigations of geology, chemistry, and physiology in his spare time. But when his mother died at the end of 1796, he came into his inheritance. And this gave him the opportunity to uh, undertake his five-year expedition to Spanish America in 1791, 1799 to 1804. And here he studied all the phenomena of the Spanish-American world that he came across, from the physical and organic characteristics of the New World. Here is a portrait of Humboldt as a young man, the active scientific researcher, in the first months of his trip to South America, or to Spanish America, as we should call it. Here he is engrossed in the study of the remarkable vegetation of the tropics. On his return to Europe in 1804, after a couple of restless years, Humboldt settled in Paris, the scientific and cultural capital of Europe. He began writing up the results of his extraordinary travels and studies of his Spanish America. He in fact undertook a remarkable publishing project. It was extended to 30 volumes. Exhausting his personal fortune, what was left from his expedition, but also the resources of, of three different publishers. In 1826, he returned to Berlin and took up the position of Royal Chamberlain through King Frederick, Friedrich Wilhelm III and continued on under his successor. But outside a brief six-month expedition in 1829 to Siberia in the eastern reaches of the southern steppes and the Alpine mountains, he concentrated on writing, dividing his time between Paris and Berlin. The culmination of this writing career was a publication by volumes of Cosmos, a sketch of the physical description of the universe, the first volume appearing in 1845 and the last published posthumously in 1862. Here we have a portrait of Humboldt in 1856, uh, three years before his death, in his study in Berlin, surrounded by his books and maps and the artifacts of his extraordinary travels and his life. In this talk, I will examine how Humboldt <coughs> mediated the space between these two aspects of his life, which were created in these two portraits. How he transformed his experience of natural phenomena as a field researcher and an experimentalist into a series of publications that included not only written accounts of his travels and investigations, but also a remarkable series of illustrations and maps. To explore this process of rendering empirical studies and meeting encounters with nature into text and images in graphic form, it's particularly interesting to pursue this in the case of Humboldt, because he reflects a great deal on the process. And those reflections are an important part of his legacy. Today, what I'll first discuss is how Humboldt reflected on the use of measuring apparatus as instruments of judgment, mediating between phenomena and their conceptualization. Then I will discuss how he also argued for the importance of aesthetic appraisal, 
as a means of bringing sensible perceptions into relationship with the intellect, and also as a means of gaining insight into the character of an environment as a whole. Finally, I will examine how we develop new techniques of mapping, innovative modes of graphic representation, as means for rendering his understanding and insight required through his instrumental investigations and his aesthetic apprehensions of nature into a figurative language for communicating that knowledge to others. I will focus here mainly on Siebel's exhibitions of bodies and their lives, which form the basis of the substantive portion of his publications. During his five-year journey with Ernest Bonpland, he traveled through present-day Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Cuba, and Mexico, with a brief stopover in the capitals of North America en route home to Europe. This expedition was two years in gestation, as Humboldt pursued various destinations in the midst of wars in Europe that were also playing out in the high seas. In the end, Humboldt was able to secure the support and protection of King Charles VII of Spain to travel unfettered through the Spanish, through Spain's American colonies. It was really quite a remarkable achievement to get that carte blanche to travel wherever he wanted. Here we have a portrait of Humboldt and Bonpland, probably one of the most famous images of Humboldt. Um, here they're in the forest of the river Arenonco, um, present, present day Venezuela. One can see from this portrait that this was no ordinary expedition. First of all, Humboldt and Bonpland's expedition expedition was largely land-based. In contrast to most of the previous expeditions that focused on coastlines and islands accessible by ship. By venturing into the interior of Spanish America, Humboldt yielded a far greater scientific harvest, a greater knowledge of geology and topography and vegetation and animals and peoples of the continent. The expedition was also unique in the array of scientific instruments it brought with it for its study of the New World. Indeed, in the portrait, one is struck by the clutter, not only of collected specimens, but also of equipment. Humboldt carried with him not only the more familiar telescopes, sextants, compasses, chronometers, sonometers, barometers, and electrometers, but also instruments such as hygrometers and odometers. This array of instruments was used to measure all possible physical parameters of the environmental regions or climates through which he traveled, from the positions of the stars and latitude, longitude, and altitude, to temperatures, humidity, and air pressure, to direction and intensity of magnetism and electrical tension, and changes in the volume of gas in chemical these instruments were means through which Humboldt was able to read the physical conditions of the environment and translate them into a scientific view of nature. Who had invested significantly in these instruments? They were expensive to purchase. But he had also invested much of his two years' preparation for his expedition, traveling to various European centers of science, determining which instruments were the most reliable, and acquiring the necessary skills to use each of them, according to the standards of experts in the field. Humboldt had already established his credibility as an experimentalist, adept with instruments, in the years he worked as a mining uh, inspector before his expedition. Most prominent was his 1797 book, Experiments on Excited Muscle and Nerve Fibers with Conjectures on the Chemical Processes of Life in the animal and vegetable kingdom. It was an impressive 1,000-page study detailing some 4,000 experiments. His studies began by examining Luigi Galvani's experiment, which used a chain of two metals and amputated frog legs to create an electrical current that moved the muscle fiber. Galvani had claimed that these experiments demonstrated a new form of electricity, animal electricity. Here we see some figures from uh, Humboldt's extraordinary book illustrating his own galvanic experiment. 
In his study, he would use the frog leg as a kind of instrument, using variations in the motions of the frog leg to record variations in the strength of the electrical current produced by bringing different metals into contact through moist material. So we moisture, so you can see between the plates, uh, a sponge, so a sponge that creates electricity. So he would combine different uh, combinations of these metals um, in different amounts and different kinds of metals and use the frog leg to measure the, the strength of the current. He then compared the readings of the frog apparatus to experiments on his own body in a remarkable series of self-experiments in which he applied metallic chains to his sensory organs and opened wounds on his back and other parts of his body and recorded the sensations from the resultant electric shock. He compared those to the behavior of frogs. In this study, Humboldt began to explore the comparative method that would become the signature of his scientific approach. First of all, there's the comparison of the readings of the natural phenomena by mechanical instruments with the readings of the organic instruments, with the effects on organic tissues, the frog legs, as well as the effects on his own uh, body and sensory organs. But also, the relation, he was exploring the relationships between excitability or vitality of organic tissue, of muscles and nerves, which is what you have in the frog leg, a muscle with a nerve, to which you apply the metal. He's comparing the, the vitality of organic tissue to chemical and electrical processes, and concluded that organic phenomena are in fact a result of a combination of vital, chemical, and, and physical processes, all entangled with each other. His galvanic experiments were a development of a series of investigations he conducted as a mining inspector on airs and mines, in which he compared chemical analysis of the gases to study of the effects of airs on plants, as well as to miners' health and on his own body again. Indeed, while he was busy making plans for an expedition, he published two further substantial collections of investigations on subterranean gases and chemical analysis of airs and their relationships to heat, humidity, electricity, and magnetism. Part of the challenge of the expedition was to bring this extraordinary array of instruments, this method of using instrumental readings of nature to the tropics. Procuring instruments and learning the techniques to be used uh, was relatively simple. What was difficult was carrying them with him into the tropics, carrying them through tropical forests, across plains, up rivers, and over mountains. But Humboldt regarded such tools as vital instruments of judgment, instruments for mediating between the scientist and the object of his study, for moving reflexively between appearances and their conception. His instruments were not simply lenses for looking more closely or more accurately. They offered readings of phenomena according to the current scientific theory. They were designed, each instrument was designed in relationship to developing scientific concepts regarding heat, air pressure, chemistry of air, magnetism, and electric attention. These were ideas uh, phenomena and scientific theories in the process of being formulated and each instrument incorporated or reflected that particular theory or a particular interpretation of the theory. Humboldt actually took several instruments of each kind because these theories uh, being in flux um, were different according or incorporated into instruments differently by different instrument makers. So he wanted to have different instruments made by different people that were understanding the phenomena slightly differently. So he could compare them and not be dependent upon just one point of view or one concept of the phenomena at the time. These instruments allowed Humboldt to translate the physical conditions and powers of the tropical climate he encountered into the scientific language of his time. Now he, Humboldt did not consider these physical conditions of the environment as inaccessible to the senses. They might not be immediately visible, but remember Humboldt regarded his own body as a highly sensitive instrument, attuned to registering differences in temperature, air pressure, and air quality. He long used his own body, bodily sensation as an organic apparatus alongside his mechanical apparatus 
and continue to do so during these expeditions. Humboldt felt notebooks with records of all manner of measurements of these various physical parameters in various locations at different times. Those registered by his instruments alongside those registered by his body. Both he and Bonpland also filled books with press plant specimens and notes. Bonpland was actually a skilled botanist and carefully collected and notated dried and pressed innumerable specimens from the tropics. Humboldt was particularly struck by the remarkable vegetation of the tropics. He came to regard beans and varied forms of plants they encountered as providing an additional record of the environmental climate that they traveled through, each plant being characteristic to the local climate in which they were found. He came home to compose a view of a terrestrial physics from these materials. This physics of the earth was to track the great and constant laws of nature, manifested in the rapid flux of phenomena and to trace the reciprocal interaction, the conflict, as it were, of the divided physical powers. By attending to all the phenomena powers of nature, they varied over time and space, insofar as they were measurable, or insofar as they were readable by the various instruments uh, that he brought with him. Humboldt sought to produce a portrait, a great web of cause and effect, the cooperation of phenomena powers within the physical environment, and hence the dynamic unity of nature. He came to understand the unique and extraordinary plants he found in the tropics as a product of this web of phenomena powers. He developed a notion of a geography of plants that traced the specific forms of vegetation in relationship to the specific physical conditions of the specific climates in which they lived and which he recorded with his instruments, both mechanical apparatus and his own body. also carried with him an aesthetic view of the world in his expedition to the tropics, an appreciation for the beauty of the world, for its formal harmonies as well as its sensuous qualities. It's commonplace to present Humboldt's aesthetic appreciation of landscape as a simple emotional response, standing in sharp contrast with scientific inquiries, with their disciplined expertise and careful measurements. Aesthetics at the turn of the 19th century was a rapidly developing area, informed by numerous treaties on the subject, and new appreciation of the history of art and different forms of art. Indeed, at the time, aesthetic judgments were regarded as an important mode for bringing sensible phenomena into relationship with the intellect. The University of Vienna, <coughs> shown here in engravings from 1800, became a center for many of these interests had recently highlighted the importance of aesthetics with his critique of judgment in 1790, in which he analyzed the judgment of beauty with the same theoretical acumen he applied to other aspects of thought. Aesthetic judgment for Kant involved a feeling of harmony or disharmony between the faculties of sensory intuition and understanding, a feeling of pleasure or displeasure that was productive of reflection regarding the beauty of the objects prompting those feelings. Yena became a center for post-Kantian philosophy and, in reflection on, uh, and for the reflection on aesthetics in years around or during the 1790s or the years around 1800. Allow me to just give you a few examples. The poet and philosopher Johann Schiller developed Kant's aesthetic ideas into a program for the cultural and aesthetic education of the German people. The cultural historian Johann Korda emphasized the importance of aesthetics to the cultural development of the diverse peoples of the world. Early Romantic critics, such as the Schlegel brothers and Novalis, made critical aesthetic judgments central to both the production and the appreciation of art. Hugo was drawn to this exciting circle of writers and thinkers in Vienna, visiting Austin in the years prior to his expedition. But the significance of the aesthetic appreciation for the study of nature was particularly impressed upon him both by Goethe. The two met in Vienna in 1794. Goethe being based in nearby Weimar, 
acting as Privy Council for the Duchy with responsibility for the university. Singleton Goethe soon formed a close friendship based on their mutual interest in natural science. I have an engraving here which shows the brothers Wilhelm and Alexander von um, standing. Got Wilhelm sitting. Working area, that's us. That's Wilhelm, here's Alexander, and then we've got Schiller and Goethe all together in Vienna enjoying a bit of conversation over some paper. Goethe had published an essay, The Metamorphosis of Plants, in 1790, in which he set out the laws of plant development or transformation, to quote, according to which nature produces one part to another and presents the greatest variety of forms. He identified the leaf as a primary formal element found in all parts of the plant and through which all formations and transformations of the plant can be traced. Such a primal form allowed a grasp of the unity and necessary relations of plants, but also their capacity to vary under contingent circumstances. Importantly for Goethe, the leaf as a primal form of plant did not play a causal role in the formation of the plant. It did not act as a metaphysical entity or archetype to explain how plants arise and develop. For Goethe, such a primal form was rather an aid to judgment. Discerning such forms allowed grasping the relationship between the parts of plants. By synthesizing what he sensed through the physical eye, with what he grasped through the inner eye or intellectual. Goethe explicitly likened discernment of the primal forms of plants with the aesthetic depreciation of forms of artwork. Both, he contended, required both a sensible and intellectual response. The appreciation of artwork required cultivation to self-study in order to discern the relationship between sensual qualities and forms, or between sensible appearances and ideas. The study of plants requires a similar cultivation in order to discern their formal relationship within, within the sensible variety. Kumbel was deeply affected by Goethe's perspective on the study of nature. They shaped the study of plant forms in the tropics. His first publication on return from his expedition, Essay on the Geography of Plants, paid homage to Goethe's influence on his own work. It argued that there is a physiognomy of plants peculiar to every region of the world, which is based on a few original forms that determine the overall character of vegetation, and thus the impression that the sight of plants and their roots make on the observer. He dedicated his German uh, edition, he published it in French and German, he dedicated the German edition to Goethe with his remarkable frontispiece. Here we see Diana, the multi-breasted goddess of nature, being unveiled by Apollo, the god of art and movement. At the feet of the statue lies a stone tablet with the perfect metamorphosis of plants. Humboldt had commissioned the frontispiece to reflect the synthesis of art, philosophy, and empirical study of nature that he had learned from Goethe. The forms of plants were only to be revealed through a combination of careful empirical studies guided by instruments with aesthetic appraisal. Goethe acknowledged this gesture by Humboldt by offering his own image synthesizing art and iron, in this drawing comparing the vegetation and mountains of the old to the new world. On the right is the new world crowned by Chimborazo, at the time thought to be the highest mountain in the world, the mountain famously climbed uh, by, in 1802 by Humboldt and Mont on the left is the Old World, crowned by Mont Blanc as its highest peak. Goethe called this drawing a symbolic landscape, a figurative form meant to combine precept and intellect. Goethe similarly calls this primal plant form, the leaf form, a symbolic plant, as it transformed a sensible appearance into an idea and an idea into a perceptible image. It was an aesthetic vision of nature that Humboldt carried with him to Spanish America. But, this, but Humboldt's geography of plants departed from Goethe's view in significant ways. 
It emphasized how the plans of a specific region deviate from the final plan forms under the influence of specific physical conditions of that environment to give each region its characteristic collective vegetation. Inclusion's emphasis on the changes to living forms under changed environmental conditions can be seen as growing concern of naturalists in the late 18th century. In his emphasis on the collective vegetation of a region can be seen the influence particular of an early teacher called Belvenal, as well as the forestry. But Newman's geography of plants was profoundly shaped by Humboldt's extraordinary experiences in the tropics. On his arrival in Spanish America, Humboldt was overwhelmed by his lush vegetation and his exotic, exotic animals. His careful studies and measurements of the various physical conditions, the interrelated web of physical powers and phenomena of environmental regions through which he traveled, led him to a growing appreciation of how physical conditions and vegetation combine to diffuse the character of a region, and of how the collective phenomena of vegetation varies across space and time with changing environments. On his return from his expedition, Hummel found that the aesthetic views that better suited his new appreciation of the collective uh, uh, phenomena of vegetation was not those of Goethe. Goethe had cultivated his aesthetic sensibility by the study of classical art, studying the form and sensible qualities of individual works of art, and he studied the form and sensible qualities of individual plants. Humboldt, in contrast, increasingly gravitated towards landscape paintings, as it was more suited to his study of the collective phenomena of vegetation, the characteristic forms of plants found in specific climates to which he became interested during his travels. In the appreciation of landscape painting, Humboldt was influenced by jo Joseph Koch, the preeminent German landscape artist of his time. Humboldt met Koch uh, in Rome in 1805, shortly after his return from Spanish America, while visiting his brother, who now resided there. In this 1795 volume is an important example of the direction of landscape art at the turn of the 19th century. With its attention to realism and the details of vegetation, and even the characteristic forms of the trees and their specific forms of leaves, but also to how they come together to form the landscape of the specific area. In this case, it's the Hadley Valley near Meringen in Switzerland where Koch had grown up. Koch has also been interested in the study of science, especially recent works emphasize the interrelationship of the powers and phenomena of nature. Accordingly, his paintings also depict cycles of nature. In this case, you can see clouds forming around the distant mountain peaks, reducing their moisture into mountain streams that eventually wind their way into valleys to sustain both the lush vegetation and human inhabitants. Costa also offered a similar combination of the synthesis of sensible perceptions and ideas that have informed Goethe's aesthetic and scientific visions of nature. But Humboldt found that the study of landscape painting rather than the study of classical artifacts informing Goethe's aesthetic sensibility was better suited to interest in the characteristic vegetation of a region that he was coming to call its physiognomy. It helped cultivate an aesthetic appreciation of the collective phenomena of vegetation. It also, he said, displayed a more material basis and a more earthly tendency with his close study of the characteristic natural forms in a given region. Koch's landscape offered an image of nature that fit Humboldt's developing views of a terrestrial physics concerned with the dynamic unity of physical and organic phenomena and powers within different regions of the world. As was the case with the many instruments Humboldt carried with him throughout his expeditions, instruments that he used to mediate between the perception of individual phenomena and their conceptualization, these aesthetic impressions were also used as a means of mediating between the empirical perception of the phenomena of a region and the impression of its overall character. An ability to respond to an environment aesthetically 
was also an important instrument of judgment that facilitated the ability to appreciate it and understand it as a unified whole, and to appreciate the impression made by the characters. In a series of remarkable essays published shortly after his geography of plants, Humboldt brought together these different facets of his work, his careful instrumental readings of physical powers and phenomena that came to together to produce the environment, the climate of the region, the impressions of his physical environment on his body and his senses, his aesthetic appreciation of the landscape, and how the specific plants of a region formed a collective character. He called these essays views of nature, views offering verbal portraits, often accompanied by plates, portraits of the characteristic landscape he encountered during his travels. Here is one example, the plateau at the foot of Chimborazo um, in Spanish America. Each essay provides, each one of these views of nature provides the impression of the collective phenomena with, of a particular region with amazing vividness and tending to all the sensuous and formal qualities of the scene, from its shifting colors and atmosphere to its characteristic vegetation to its striking landmasses. Each essay is also accompanied by detailed notes, elucidations of his measurements of the physical environment. Notes, for example, on the angle of the sun and the humidity of the air that affected the refraction of light through the atmosphere to create that vivid visual effect, and hence the particular coloration of the scene. These views of nature thus move across traditional modes of presentation, combining quantitative data with landscape aesthetics and botanies with physical geography. Similarly, Humboldt's account of the ascent of Chamberoso, which you can see in the background here, combines a vivid aesthetic impressions with careful physical measurements alongside observations of the vegetation and the effects of these changing conditions on his own bodily senses. Despite their inappropriate clothing and boots, his party managed to climb to 19,286 feet, the highest recorded altitude beach at that time. Unfortunately, they encountered then a ravine that blocked their further progress a mere 1,400 feet from the summit. Humboldt recorded the needed experience of grand and awe-inspiring spectacle that greeted their eyes as they climbed above the mist and could view the dome-shaped summit against the azure sky surrounded by amazing trees. But he also stopped, paused to record measurable details of the experience, setting up a barometer to determine the height above sea level with his frozen fingers and variations in temperature measuring them along the way. He also noted the changing vegetation during the climb and its eventual disappearance at a certain altitude. He compared those readings with those of his body, the bitter cold, recording his frozen fingers, the excess of altitude sickness, lack of oxygen, the nausea and giddiness, shortness of breath, and bleeding gums that he experienced along the way. Both the sublimity of the vista and the detailed physical record of the experience were important to Humboldt's views of Chimborazo and his views of other characteristic regions he encountered during his travels. Humboldt also introduced unique depictions of these views of nature in a series of maps. These maps offered remarkable graphic portraits of the varied characteristic environments of Spanish America. They also provided a medium through which Humboldt explored new figurative languages of his views of nature. At the end of the 18th century, mapping was a rapidly developing graphic form. Many thematic distribution maps were being published, maps that depicted geographical variations in a, usually on a particular phenomenon, rather than depicting a variety of phenomena in a ge given geographical region. He would track a particular phenomenon across places rather than mapping a collective phenomenon vegetation as Humboldt was built to do. These were new techniques for measuring, collecting, and representing information um, were being developed. Uh, 
being able to provide collected data in a comprehensive search form, and also promoting a specific interpretation of that information. Google recognized the powers of maps to represent and promote his view of a terrestrial physics, which depicted the laws resulting from the interrelationship of forces, and his views of the geography of plants, which is depicted the visual varied distribution of the collective phenomena of vegetation. He experimented with a variety of mapping techniques, attempting to capture graphically his view of the dynamic unity of nature that he had formed from his careful measurements, as well as from his aesthetic impressions of uh, different regions. Kumbu's most striking and famous map is his principal portrait of the Andes, which accompanies his 1807 essay on the geography of plants. Here we have the central image of the Andes framed on both sides by tables of measurement, records of Humboldt's meticulous detailing of the changing physical conditions, the changes to temperature, humidity, air pressure, and other physical powers at different altitudes as they climb Mount Chimborazo. The choice of a profile of the Andes was because the variation in altitude enabled encompassing in a very small space as one moves up the mountain the variety of physical environments he had encountered on his expedition, and thus different climatic zones of the tropics all pressed together in one visual image. The left side of the mountain indicates the visually different kinds of vegetation that could be encountered in these different environmental regions. The right side is inscribed with the Latin names of these different plants. But if this physical portrait of the Andes is Humboldt's most famous map, it could also be argued it's the least successful. Its three predominant elements, the instrumental measurement, the visual illustration of plants, and the scientific nomenclature stand in tension, crudely separated rather than synthetically integrated in the unified view of the collective impressions of vegetation. Humboldt admitted that in composing this image, he struggled with the imposing requirement of scientific precision and painterly effect. Humboldt's vision, his hope, was that the empirical science would be able to make explicit and train objectively what the landscape artist was able to intuit more implicitly and subjectively, the interconnection of natural phenomena, of natural powers and the vegetation of the, of the different environments. But in the end, the elements of his map worked against each other rather than together. He faced a similar problem with his 1808 views of nature, his verbal portraits of characteristic landscapes. In these essays, aesthetic impressions dominate the depictions of each region, his verbal essays, with an instrumental measurement relegated to notes at the end. Again, his instrumental judgments are separated from his aesthetic judgments rather than united in a unified single view. In his later maps, Humboldt worked to develop both aspects of his views of nature, the figurative representation of plants in different geographic regions and his physical measurements, with new graphic techniques that could bring both facets of his tableau into harmony. He found a new figurative language to express the relationship of his aesthetic vision um, with his instrumental measurements, and a medium to make visible the empirical law of nature. You can see some of the more successful attempts in some of his later maps. This is one from 1817, presenting the geographical distribution of plants in different climatic zones, depicting the vegetation found at different altitudes as well as different latitudes, the Andes, the Alps, northern. Uh, northern Norway or Lapland, depicting the equatorial, temperate, and Arctic climatic zones. Like his portrait of the Andes, Humboldt continues to use mountain profiles to depict in a small space a variety of climatic regions found as one ascends a mountain. But it adds a comparison of the regions of the earth. Interesting to note that the map also includes wild as well as cultivated nature, showing some 
uh, depictions of the tropical forest or the, the un, uncultivated landscape next to um, the effects of human cultivation on, on, uh, on, on the vegetation. This map offers a more immediate view, Humboldt thought, of the collective impression of vegetation and provides a more effective synthesis of his aesthetic mood connected to nature. Depicted here are the characteristic forms of vegetation and their characteristic environment across the regions of the earth it allows, in a form that allows for a ready comparison. The physical outlet prepared by Heinrich Berghaus in 1852 to accompany the cosmos, Humboldt's last publication, provides an even more striking graphic mapping of the distribution of vegetation in different climatic regions and zones, at different altitudes and latitudes. It adds to the comparison of the Andes, Alps, and Lapland, um, that of Tenerife and the Himalaya, as well as a global map of the geographic zones they represent. And both of these later maps, details are kept to a minimum, the details of names of plants and physical measurements. The focus is on mapping the geographic distribution of plants in different climates or environments around the globe. But Humboldt manages to convey a remarkable amount of information graphically, including key, key physical aspects of the environment, the characteristic forms of plants, and collective vegetation. He even has in the corner, the bottom corner, uh, some details of the, the plants of, of the different regions. Humboldt did these restrictive experiments in mapping to the geography of plants. Given his concerns with the total physical environment of each region as a basis of the distribution of vegetation, he also turned to mapping some of the physical characteristics. For example, he produced a, a series of geological maps. Remember, Humboldt had begun his career as a student of geology and a mining inspector and kept abreast of developments in the field. But rather than mapping mineral deposits, as with his study of plants, became interested in the common forms and developments of rocks and the ways in which landscapes were, um, were altered as a result of local geographical conditions and formations. During his Spanish-American expeditions, he was particularly interested in volcanoes, which were regarded at the time to play a significant role in the historical transformation of the physical Earth. He, in fact, took every opportunity to find volcanoes and preserve their geological forms during his expedition. This illustration of 1810, from his 1810 views of the Cordilleras, depicts lava flows produced by volcanoes, produces lava flows produced by volcanoes in western Mexico, which he described in some detail in, his, in the work, um, views of the Cordilleras. This 1861 map from the atlas that accompanies his cosmos depicts the cross-section of the Earth's crust according to the latest geological um, sciences that were being developed. It again emphasizes the role of volcanic activity in the formation of the Earth. Such geological formations provided the physical conditions for the landscape, for the environment of the region. More influential was Humboldt's innovative map of isothermal lines from 1817, showing a variation of temperature across space. In the development of this map, Humboldt was influenced by Edmund Haley, who used isolines to, to map the magnetic variation of the Earth in the early 18th century. Haley's innovation was to combine data from tables of magnetic measurements taken from around the globe with techniques used by nautical experts in interpreting navigational charts to summarize magnetic variations using an isometric map. But Humboldt's isothermal map, constructed on a plain chart and showing no coastline and only a few place names, has more of the appearance of a graph than a map, in which variable time, the variable of time is replaced by the variable of space. In developing this map, Humboldt was also influenced by Johann Lambert, who was one of the first to use graphical displays of experimental data such as this graph of the variation of temperature of the Earth's surface or soil over time. Lambert argued that such graphs were not simply visual presentations of data. By showing smooth curves averaging a mass of measurements, they were also able to depict regularity 
or laws of nature. Tyndall similarly saw his isothermal mass as a figurative representation of laws of nature. In this case, the variation of the mean temperature with place um, or over space, making these laws immediately visible to the eye. Hubble's isothermal map was developed by Burkhardt for the 1852 atlas accompanying the cosmos. Burkhardt's vision has more uh, version has more of the familiar characteristics of a map in contrast to Humboldt's rat-like depiction. It also displays the tremendous development of isothermal research since 1817 by being able to cover the entire globe in some detail. Humboldt had a hope that with improved measurements, isothermal maps would become more exact, exact so that they would be able to offer an objective figurative representation of the law of temperature temperature variation. One would be able to see immediately the laws of celestial physics through mapping the flux of phenomena and powers. All of Humboldt's maps were symbolic landscapes in visual sense, figurative forms meant to combine percept and intellect, to transform an appearance into an idea and an idea into a concrete, perceptible image. These maps provided a means to mediate between phenomena and their conceptualization, providing a symbolic form in which thought and experience are combined. If the apparatus Humboldt used to make his physical measurements were instruments of judgment, providing a reading of phenomena in the language of scientific theory, and on which his laws of nature and the dynamic unity of forces were based, and if his aesthetic appraisals were similarly instruments of judgment, used to form an impression of the specific characteristics of its environment and to see its diverse phenomena as a whole, his maps were similarly instruments of judgment, mediating between perception and intellect to represent and facilitate the comprehension of the regularities and laws of his geography of plants and his terrestrial physics. I would like to conclude by briefly considering how Humboldt extended his geography of plants and terrestrial physics to consider the effects of the environment on the character and culture of the people inhabiting it. The idea that peoples and nations had risen and fallen along the lines of geography was not original to Humboldt. In these views, Humboldt was influenced by the cultural historian Herder, one of the friends of Goethe, who he had come to know well during his visit to Vienna. Herder was interested in the climate or environment of different peoples, which for him included everything from the character of the, of the atmosphere and the topography of the land to the characteristic food, dwellings, and dress. Herder argued that the environment profoundly affected the development of mind or spirit, a people's character, and their ways of thinking and acting. Humboldt here was also influenced by the landscape artist Huff, who had helped him de uh, develop his interest in landscape painting. Huff had a similar relationship, of, a similar um, view of the relationship between the environment of people and their cultural development. Huff's Gresham landscape attempted to depict these relationships between landscape and culture. Although not completed until 1812, it was begun in 1805, the year he came to know Humboldt. It depicts the landscape, um, it depicts in the landscape what Koch regarded as the causes of the qualities of classical thought. One can see in particular how the simple lines of, of the architecture of the city reflect the linear forms of the surrounding cliffs. The classical landscape, um, contrast with his painting of a Swiss landscape from 1817, in which the irregular forms of the Gothic architecture Koch argued or depicted as having its origin in the ir irregular alpine terrain. These two paintings offered or represented a popular view of the contrast between the two poles of European culture, that of the North as opposed to that of the Mediterranean. Hubble's work similarly explored the relationship between the character of the environment and the character of the people, or what he described the influence of the physical on the moral world. It was Hubble's travel through Spanish America that convinced him of this influence. In the tropics, 
beneath the glowing rays of the tropical sun, he found extraordinarily, extraordinarily flush forms of vegetation, a vegetation so exuberant and abundant, he argued, that his people had not been able to conquer it and domesticate it. Humboldt was struck by the contrast to the dreary plant forms of his native northern Europe and the uniform vegetation of cultivated land. But Humboldt argued that the rich development of our language, the glowing fancy of the poet, and the imitative art of the painter afforded inhabitants of the old world abundant compensation, enabled the imagination to depict in vivid ways its impressions of nature. Indeed, Humboldt argued it was the cultural superiority of the more cultivated aesthetics of morality and more precise science of the Europeans that provided the ideas and sensibilities needed to develop terrestrial physics and geography plants. Humboldt did study the culture and monuments of the indigenous cultures of America, demonstrating an interest in non-European cultures that can be considered unusual for the time. His political essay on New Spain, published between 1808 and 1811, was one of his most successful works. He also published studies in, of the monuments of Aztec culture, such as the rooms and the temples at the Pyramid of Cholula near Mexico City in his 1810 views of the Cordilleras and monuments of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Indeed, he spent a year in Mexico City working in the libraries, learning about pre-Columbian archaeology, and discussing his findings with local scholars. Humboldt could not help but see the New World and its people through the perspective of the Spanish-American Spanish colonialists who provided the infrastructure of his expedition. And he was often highly critical of their impact on that world, from the destruction of the environment and the alteration of regional climates caused through agriculture and mining to the br brutality of slavery. He also relied heavily on the indigenous people to guide him through his travels, from navigating rivers and scaling mountains to sharing local knowledge of uh, local flora and fauna. Humboldt's views of nature and the prophets was profoundly shaped by the ever-present indigenous guides. His views of the Cordilleras offer both illustrated views of natural landscape and illustrated commentaries on cultural monuments of the indigenous people of the New World. It, in fact, argues for the harmony and connection between the two, between the rude cultural artifacts of the indigenous people and the rude or savage natural environment. His conception of the differences between the cultures of the New and Old World are depicted in the frontispiece to the Geographical Atlas of the New Continent, published in 1814. It depicts Mercury, the god of commerce, help, helping a fallen egg pick prince to its feet, while Minerva, goddess of letters, extends an olive branch. The monuments of political upheaval are scattered around their feet, and the ruins of Mexican culture are visible in the background. Towering overall is the impressive mountain of Chimborazo depicting Humboldt's view that the landscape of the New World was so powerful that it overwhelmed the sensibilities of its inhabitants, preventing them from developing the arts and sciences, sciences that flourished in the Old World. His frontispiece shows the superior humanity, letters, and economy of Europe being offered to the New World as a means to restore order and develop its culture. Humboldt clearly regarded the maps contained in the atlas as well as the terrestrial physics and geography of plants as part of that contribution. Humboldt, in fact, increasingly came to see his many publications as having an educational role, even for the people of Europe. His writings reveal how he increasingly moved away from an attempt to make original contributions to science and towards an attempt to provide a synthetic vision of a science, its methods, and its understanding of the universe for a wider audience. Humboldt's last publication, The Cosmos, a sketch of the physical description of the universe, which appeared in five volumes from 1845 to 1862, offers precisely such a vision. It accounted the rapid specialization of science during the 19th century. Cosmos was a hugely successful work, translated into every major European language, 
and one of the most widely read books of the 19th century. It remains his most well-known work. In it, one finds Humboldt's vision of science that I expect to you today. The commitment to empirical and instrumental study of nature, long sections on the importance of aesthetics in the study of nature, and an outline of a terrestrial physics and geography of science. The accompanying Atlas by Berthaus, one of the most foremost cartographers of the 19th century, illustrates in a graphic form Humboldt's figurative labelwork of the relationship between phenomena and their conceptualization. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.